a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon. Episode 5. In episode 4, we get to know Maddie Johnson, the young woman who is living in Cedar City as a college student, who meets the man who will become her husband as he is her professor teaching a Shakespeare class. She lives there in a home purchased for her by her father. She rents out the house next door to a young man named Junior Kemmler. We watch as she takes the older man, the professor who she's fallen in love with, back to meet her parents in Pennsylvania. And we watch how they react to this older man who is her boyfriend. We get to know Maddie a little bit before we know that she comes to such an untimely demise. And now, A Gentle Thief, Episode 5. Cable was one of four radio stations that broadcast from a small, hot pink-colored house on the outskirts of Cedar City. People trying to find it from out of town would describe it as the middle of nowhere. They'd wonder how anyone had ever lived in a house that color and then settle on the assumption that it had only been painted such an assaulting pink after it was turned into a radio station complex. Cable's format was heavy metal, which seemed an unlikely choice considering the people of the small town of Cedar City seemed a little more country than rock and roll. The music selection may have reflected the renegade qualities of the station's program director, Con Solier. Or maybe it was just the only format not already being offered by one of Cable's sister stations. Cable was the black sheep of four siblings, all owned by a former disc jockey turned businessman from Salt Lake City, who flew into town periodically in his single-engine Cessna to check on his employees. Cable's broadcast booth was in a closet down the hall to the left when you entered the pink house. It had a heavy steel door that never fully closed, which made all the soundproofing basically useless. Cable's sister stations were an oldie station, a country station, and a station in search of a format, but vacillating between adult contemporary and top 40. The employees who worked at the four stations were like a handful of designer jelly beans, each with distinct qualities, but not every one tasty. There were the college students who studied mass communications at Southern Utah University. There was the former Vegas showgirl who moved to Cedar City to get away from the debauchery of the Strip, but who brought the most destructive parts of her former lifestyle with her. Then there were the wives of townspeople who worked in the accounting and sales departments, two of the more respectable careers in radio, who actually treated the station like a real job. 
Finally, there were the former Salt Lake City announcers who were filled with bitterness for the bigger market stations that had fired them so undeservedly some years before. And then there was Consolier. No one had quite figured him out. People guessed he had some sort of in with the owner because nobody knew what his previous experience was. He never spoke of working in Vegas or Salt Lake or even Boise, Idaho. He didn't tell stories of his days at a college station or a small startup in some rinky-dink town in the Midwest. He didn't tell stories about anything. He didn't seem to have much interest in talking or especially listening unless the topic was how to get to a bigger market or get his show syndicated. Khan did not delight in the town or its people, as so many transplants to Cedar City did. People who wound up in the small southern Utah town rarely intended to do so. Many would say over breakfast at the local diner that when they arrived 20 years earlier, they had intended to stay for only a year, maybe two, five years tops. But the town had a way of holding you like an old lazy boy you meant to get rid of but never got around to replacing. The little cottage-sized houses, so neatly arranged on streets laid out broadly 150 years ago by Mormon pioneers, were well cared for. People said morning to joggers and dog walkers who meandered by on their morning routines. The girls who worked at the breakfast buffet were daughters of high school teachers, who everyone knew and mostly liked. And then there was Khan. It wasn't that he kept to himself, exactly— he would stop by Hal's for lunch two or so times a week and talk to people while he was there, unless there were no women. He would say hello to the checker at Lynn's when she said hello first. He had even been seen mowing the lawn of the elderly woman who lived next door to him. But there was something standoffish about him that unsettled people. They felt judged by him, resented for some slight they didn't remember inflicting. In the summer, when everyone caught up with each other's kids and church projects on the lawns of Southern Utah University during the Shakespearean Festival, Khan would stand off to the side in the back under the large tree just north of the Adams Theater. He would not buy mincemeat tarts from the young girls dressed in period costume who wandered through the crowd. He would only occasionally clap when the minstrels on the small green show stage begged for applause. Despite no outward betrayal of enjoyment, he went. Not every week, like some of the locals did, but more than once a summer. And when he did, he seemed to be looking for something. Khan met Maddie one August night toward the end of the festival in 1983, when the sky threatened lightning and the crowd was warm and full. When he arrived a little after seven, she was standing underneath the big tree. He didn't approach her at first, just stood in line for espresso and glanced in her direction. Her mouth was open watching the performance, seeming to drink in the laughter, closing only to swallow. A rose by any other name, he said after approaching her from behind her right shoulder. Oh, hello, she answered startled, would smell as sweet. He didn't ask her her name or offer his. He only looked ahead at the players, shouting to be heard over the crowd in their Scottish accents. She snuck a glance to her right. His hair was deep brown, almost black, and straight as straw. His face was not handsome, but attractive. 
He smelled like garlic, and she wondered if he worked in one of the restaurants up the canyon near her home, or whether perhaps he was from out of town and had just enjoyed a nice dinner there. Maddie was thinking she should say something, maybe ask if he was enjoying his stay, or if he knew one of the performers, when she felt him walk off. Hmm. That was irritating. Who was that? Why would he just come up to her, use Shakespeare like some bad pickup line, and then leave without saying another word? His presence lingered like cheap perfume. He ruined the rest of the green show for her. She couldn't concentrate on it. When it concluded, she walked absently back to her car, stopping only briefly to speak, without focus, to the mother of one of her students. A rose by any other name, please. What an obvious, stupid thing to say. Maybe if that same line was delivered in a less obvious setting, for instance, anywhere but a Shakespearean festival, but not here. Was he a local? Had she seen him before at DeSoro or Howells or somewhere? Oh, it was ridiculous to give it another thought. Ridiculous and wrong. She was married, after all. Robert had not felt like going to the Green Show with her that night. He rarely did. He attended each of the six plays only once each summer. Robert took no delight in the festival atmosphere for its own sake. He wanted to hear the words, the metaphor, and see them performed with passion. The atmosphere alone did not give him pleasure. In fact, it pained him slightly for reasons he didn't explore. How was the show? he asked as he took off his glasses when she walked in the door. Oh, it was fine, she said quietly. I saw Mark's mother. You know, the one who wants to be a screenwriter when he grows up? Ah, oh, yes, the young Francis Ford Coppola. How was his mother? Chatty. Want to watch a movie? Something with Anthony Hopkins just came on. No, thanks. I think I'll just go up to bed. She kissed him on the head and went to undress, a little more conscious of the way her skin felt as she removed her clothes. Lying down on the right side of the bed, the side she always slept on, she settled her belly into the sheets and felt her mind swirling. She replayed what had happened that night. She imagined the scene as something from a play itself, a love story, perhaps a tragedy, that began with a bad come-on line delivered under a tree. As she fell asleep an hour or so later, Maddie had the image of the strange man's lips in her mind, too thick for his featureless face. Maddie made an excuse to go back to the Green Show the next night. She told Robert she was thinking of incorporating some of the skits into her fifth-grade English class when they did Shakespeare this year, and she wanted to take more detailed notes. Robert complained, without enthusiasm, that he hated eating alone, and then turned back to his book. Driving to campus, Maddie started to feel hives break out on her neck just under her jawline. She scratched at them and looked in the rearview mirror to see if they showed. She was irritated with the predictable anxiety of getting behind the wheel, and all the more so this night because she knew she was hoping the Shakespeare pickup line man would be there again. Maddie got a great parking spot just 25 yards from the path to the green show, got out and locked her car. She lifted her head as nonchalantly as possible and headed toward the big tree, looking around without looking like she was looking around. She felt her heart pound. She could see from the street that there was a tall man standing under the tree where she had met him the night before. Now what, Maddie? 
Should she walk right up to him and deliver a Shakespeare line of her own? Or go get coffee? Or look around for a friend? Or turn around and go home? Before she could decide what to do, another parent of one of her fifth graders from last year approached her. Hi there, Maddie. Where's Robert tonight? People in the small town had accepted her marriage to the much older Shakespeare professor with more ease than Maddie had imagined they would. She noticed the man standing under the tree turn slightly in her direction as she answered, Oh, he didn't feel like coming, but I just needed to get out of the house. Sure. Want to come and sit with us? We're right over there on the blanket. See, Earl? The mom waved at her husband. Earl, look who's here. No, thanks, Maddie excused herself. I think I'll just get something to drink and wander a little, but thank you, and it's good to see you. Oh, okay. Come on over later if you feel like it. The mom, whose name Maddie thought was Martha, was already talking to someone else before Maddie got three steps away. Maddie still felt itchy and now a little sweaty as she walked over to the counter. Why did she wear this stupid skirt? Did she look as obvious as she felt? Who's Robert? He appeared at her right at the refreshment booth. He's my husband, she said, as if he had a right to know. She was trying to stuff slightly damp dollar bills back into her wallet with one hand and holding the cup of cappuccino in the other. Can I hold that for you? he offered. No, thanks. I've got it. She fumbled a little more before giving up and shoving the wallet and loose bills back into her purse, which was too big and too black to go with her skirt. They started heading back to the position under the tree where they had met the night before, walking side by side as if it had been agreed upon that that's where they were going. They stopped, facing the stage, and stood there sipping coffee. Maddie felt as if all eyes were on her. She worried that the mother of her student would wonder who this strange man was. She worried that some of Robert's friends and fellow faculty members would report back to him. She was about to tell herself to stop worrying that nobody cared one nickel who she talked to at the Green Show, but she became distracted by the smell of him. I'm sorry, I've been rude. My name is Consulier. Oh, Maddie thought his name sounded familiar. And you are? He prodded. I'm Maddie Johnson, she said, feeling foolish. So, what brings you to Cedar City? He asked in a way that felt improper. Oh, I live here, she answered, a little confused by the question. Really? he said with a smirk. Why, don't I seem like someone who lives here? No, actually, he replied with a tone that said it was true and had always been true. So, where's Robert? Oh, she started to answer, then paused and swallowed too big a sip of coffee. The coffee was way too hot for that big a sip, and it caused her to cough painfully for what seemed like forever. Now people were looking. It took a good three to four minutes before her breathing slowed back down and her cheeks started to regain their previously more moderately flushed state. Are you okay? he offered, deepening her embarrassment. Yes, I'm sorry, she said unsteadily, wondering why she was apologizing to him. Do you need some water? Thinking no, she croaked, yes. Khan walked back over to the window and got a cold bottle of water. Cracking the top for her, he said, for the damsel in distress, as he handed it over. Thanks, she gurgled before drinking half the bottle down in long draws. 
She held the bottle to her forehead and the inside of her wrist to cool herself down as she felt sweat dripping down her back. So, she started after regaining herself. Where are you from? Oh, so now I don't look like someone from around here. No, actually, she parroted him. Well, I'm not, originally, but I do live here now. I run cable. The rock station? Yeah, he said with a hint of, duh. She wondered if he was one of the voices she had heard on the air or whether he worked behind the scenes in some capacity. You run cable? she asked, not knowing what he meant by run. I'm the program director, and I do afternoon drive. So have I heard of you? I'm the irresistible one who plays Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull on your way home from work. Okay, she said, nodding. That must be fun. She felt herself hoping their meeting wasn't winding down. After an uncomfortable moment, he said, Not as much fun as this. There you are! It was Robert's voice she heard before she turned to her left to see her husband approaching in his fading jeans and those embarrassing suspenders he wore with everything. Oh, hi, Maddie said cheerily and flushed for the third time that night. Robert smiled at her and then at Con. Uh, this is Con, Maddie explained. He works at Cable. Con, this is my husband, Robert. Nice to meet you, Con, Robert replied without noticing any awkwardness. Robert turned back to Maddie. I was just missing you, so I thought I'd come check out the show after all. I think I'll get a coffee. Can I get you anything? No, thanks. I I'm good, Maddie smiled. And with that, he was off down the embankment and over to the counter window. So that's Robert, Con said slowly. Yes, she replied, applying real mental energy to betraying nothing. In that case, I guess I'll be seeing you tomorrow night. Without giving her a chance to reply, he walked off, past the coffee stand where Robert was waiting in line, through the crowd by the theater entrance, and out of her sight. Maddie did not understand when she returned the next night that she was opening a door she could never close. She had made no decisions about her marriage, given very little thought to what she was doing. She just lied about where she was going and went out the door. The night was more humid than most. She could feel the moisture in the air, on her skin, and see it on the faces of the green show performers. Feeling too self-conscious to stand, she seated herself carefully on the grass, making sure to cross her legs underneath her skirt. She wished she had brought a blanket. She hoped the grass wouldn't get her skirt wet. Maddie sat uncomfortably with very good posture for what felt like an hour, and was nearly that. She fidgeted in her purse with her hair, fingering her favorite turquoise dangly earrings. She pulled blades of grass from their roots and made a pile to her right. She bought a raspberry tart from the young girl who knelt beside her to rest for a moment, wondering if the girl was her age or younger. Nibbling at the thick doughy parts on the edge of the tart, Maddie felt so stupid. Con was probably just toying with her. He wasn't coming back. Or maybe he would, only to see if she did, eyeing her from a distance, only to laugh to himself all the way back to Cable and his legions of adoring female fans. What was she doing? She thought to stand up and go home right that minute, then paused. Maybe he was just running late. Besides, her legs were starting to fall asleep, so it would have been difficult to stand up just then anyway. 
She decided to put her legs out in front of her to let the blood flow back into them and then leave as soon as the little needles subsided. As the green show started to wind down and the ticket holders gathered their cups and headed toward the entrance of the theater, Maddie felt her heart grow heavy. She was on the verge of tears and hoped she wouldn't fall over into that place. She placed her purse out away from her on the grass and lied down, using it as a pillow. She no longer cared about the grass making her clothes wet or whether she was sitting in an unattractive stance. She looked up at the sky, so empty and cloudless tonight, and listened to the actors' opening lines on the stage of the Adams Theater. She felt the last bit of the day's sun soothe her face. A tear seeped onto her right cheek, and she wondered if it was from the glare. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, she recited to herself, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate. She took another deep breath and sat up, feeling dizzy from the effort. She heard the familiar lines of Othello on the stage below. She hated Iago. She brushed the grass from her skirt and started to walk back to her car, now sandwiched in between all the theater patrons. He was leaning against the driver's side door. She sensed him in the self-conscious way she suddenly felt even before she saw him. Her heart jumped from thrill to anger and back again as she approached. You missed a good show, she said sharply. No, I didn't. He mocked her. 